healing is possible. We share stories of people everywhere who have healed from their diagnoses. Powered by HealthRevolution.org I'm your host, Dr. Anup Kumar. Welcome to the Healing is Possible podcast. My guest today is Liz Childers. Liz Childers is a registered nurse whose nursing career has spanned over 20 years. She had always thought that she had taken care of just about every type of patient until she became a patient in 2012 after being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. She began a journey of healing that has led her to a place where her healing has remained. She began a journey of healing that has led her to a place where her disease has remained in remission without treatments. Elizabeth's desire is to share with people how they too can heal and how our society can utilize conventional Western medicine, holistic medicine, and mindfulness to achieve healing. Liz, please share with us your story of healing. Okay, so my story again is gone on for, my diagnosis was 10 years ago, but my story began back during my childhood. So that's kind of where I'm gonna begin and summarize that. Um, my earliest memories as a child was based in fear. I, as a child, was had a lot of anxiety. Um, that's pretty much all I kind of remember from early childhood is just being fearful, a lot of anxiety. Um, so that carried on through my childhood. And about the age of 10, I developed, started developing tremors in my hands and in my mouth and started getting muscle spasms in my legs to the point I can remember sleeping and my muscles tightening up and I'd have to cross my legs to sleep at night. So that started at about the age of 10. My parents were divorced when I was very young. My father was in charge of our medical care. And so my mother asked him to take me to the doctor to get this checked out in which he did. And I don't remember a whole lot from that other than I was 11 and I had the MRI, which was a very scary experience. Um, I remember that. And then I just remember just knowing after that appointment that um, the doctor said I had juvenile tremors that I would grow out of. That was just kind of it. So life went on, um, still had tremors, still had issues. I, and, and a lot of anxiety and fears. And I began playing sports um, as a way to cope with the anxiety. And as when I started doing that, I started to realize I would fall a lot, had a lot of injuries, things, you know, but at the time it's like, you're just a clumsy teenager, that sort of thing. So that went on throughout, throughout um, the rest of my childhood. Early twenties were highly stressful, of course. Um, but I found that in my early twenties, after I kind of in the mid twenties, I started, I started, um, nursing school and was just really, was kind of a good time. And I thought, wow, I really have a grasp on my anxiety. I can do, you know, it's like, that's kind of a thing in my past, but what I didn't realize was that I just learned to function under high anxiety at that point in my life. Um, but nonetheless, I, you know, graduated nursing school, got married, life was good. Um, and it, Right after I graduated nursing school, I started in the as an emergency room nurse right out of nursing school. So again, there's a little bit interesting concept of finding high anxiety jobs to fit your anxiety level in your in your body so you don't feel a deficit. I did not know that at the time, but I fit right in in the emergency room. Um, and I was um, also pregnant with our first child during that time. 
So at that time, and I was again in my late, I was in my early thirties and within about a four year time span from that time to about four years, multiple, multiple highly stressful events happened. Um, I won't go into detail on all that, but a lot happened within that four year time period. So I, I found myself at that time, I was, I was working as emergency room nurse. I was working as an oncology nurse in another hospital. Things were, it was just everywhere. And at the time I, when I first had my first child, things started happening, weird things that had not happened. Like after I had my first child, I started to get back into running. I would come home and, and I felt well, I would see smoke in our house and thought our house was on fire, but I couldn't smell it. Just weird things. And those things would crop up and they got more and more and more over that four year stressful time period. Then I reached a point to where things started really coming in done and to kind of give, um, some idea. It was kind of like somebody pulled a string from a sweater and it was, everything just was unraveling at a high speed. I mean, it was, and I was working when things started really ramping up, I was working as a fill-in house supervisor at the hospital. And one particular weekend I was, um, anytime there is a code blue house supervisor has to go to that. Luckily for me and the patient involved, it was in the ICU where there is highly trained nurses that do that day in and day out. And I also worked in a teaching hospital where, um, there were residents and, and you know, everybody with all capabilities was how was available. So I showed up just because that's what I needed to do. And I get into this room in this um, environment, which I had done many times as an ER nurse, as nurse. And it was like, I could not understand what anybody was saying. I didn't know where I was. I knew kind of, I knew what was going on, but I couldn't understand it. And it, and then of course the adrenaline kicks in and then I just, I don't know what's going on. So I removed myself from the situation. And then I was like, okay, I, there is something really bad wrong. The following day I was back at work, <laughs> remembering what happened the previous day and hoping that didn't happen again. Um, stood up from my desk at work and I couldn't feel my leg touch the floor. And it wasn't like it was asleep. It was like, I didn't have a bottom part of my leg. And so long story short, with that knowledge, I could not blame it on anything else happening in my life. I have to get a checkup. Um, a few weeks following all of that, I of course went to my PCP. They did an MRI. It came back showing multiple scattered lesions on my brain. And I was then um, hospitalized, given solumedrol, IV, all the regimen. Um, and then I had a follow-up appointment with a neurologist after I was out of the hospital. So I attended that appointment to figure out what life was going to be like now. And, um, he started questioning me about some things and he was like, did you have fall a lot when you were a kid? And, and I was like, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, I did. And it was just really kind of some odd question. He goes, well, the reason I asked, he said, is this is a really, you're kind of an odd case. He said, your MS, you have all MS symptoms, but your MS lesions are multiple, but they're, they don't look like MS lesions normally look like. He said, but there are many, many. He said, what I'm concerned about is I found an MRI from when you were 11 years old that showed you had lesions at age 11. He said, now you have a lot more now, 
but you had them back then. He said, I, so he was a little perplexed with this and as I was too, but he said, nonetheless, he said, your symptoms, it's, we have to treat you for MS. So we, we started treatment. Um, so I don't remember the time frame. I want to say it was a six month time frame. I started treatment. I got sicker and sicker. Things just went downhill. My MS, I was diagnosed with remitting, relapsing MS, and it was not remitting. It was just going full speed. Significant things started happening. I started having um, multiple urinary problems, bowel problems, chest pain, these things that would happen would end up in the same ER that I worked in. And um, of course that entailed many tests done, CT scans, MRIs, you name it, it was done because we couldn't figure out what was going on. So I was just continued to get more and more ill. And then I was concerned because I'm like, what if this is, what if this is something else? Because this is not following remitting relapsing MS. So I was like, I need a second opinion and I'm knowledgeable enough to know I should have done that to begin with, but I didn't. So I said, now's a good time to do that. I um, went to a medical research um, group in my home state and they were kind of perplexed as well. Of, you know, what had transpired, my history, what have you. So they, the doctor I saw was like, let's take you off of treatment because it's obviously not working and let's try to figure this out. At that point, I was sent to Mayo Clinic in Rochester and same thing didn't, it was like, this is atypical. We don't know what's going on. It's MS, but it's atypical MS. Didn't know. So I went, came back from Mayo Clinic still with no answers. Um, so I stayed off of treatment for about another six months and I still saw the neurologist at this research foundation. Then she did a, uh, a follow-up MRI and that's where I was found that I had had um, what's called Dawson's finger lesions. They are lesions that are close to the ventricles of the brain. They look kind of like finger-like and they are very typical of MS. Like those are like spot on MS lesions. So my neurologist is like these, no doubt about it. You know, you have multiple scatter lesions and you have these finger lesions now. So we, you've got to do treatment. Like you've, we've, that's what we got to do. So I went back on treatment and became more and more ill um, with this treatment. Went back for six months, or I don't know if it was six months, so four or five months after that. And my neurologist informed me that I that she was leaving her practice to teach university and teach at university. And so I was kind of without a neurologist. I could have saw somebody else in her practice, but um. But during this whole time of me being so ill, I had researched grasping to find anything that would help me, you know, outside of the Western medicine regimen. And so I had a family friend who had a family member who was a physician in a neighboring state that um, did a lot of alternative type things. And at that point I was so ill that I did, I, I had nothing to lose. I had no neurologist. I, I had already done the treatments. And so I thought we're just, we're going to try whatever. So to tell you how ill I was, I was at that time, I was, I couldn't walk very well. I couldn't form whole sentences. Most days I was in bed about 18 hours a day, uh, two young children, all of that. I quit my nursing profession 
there's no way I could work as a nurse and nor did I, I, I stopped doing my CEUs to keep my nursing license. I mean, I was, that was where, that was the state that I was in. So in order to get to the neighboring state to the doctor, I had to drive myself as my husband had to take care of our children. I would have to stop. It's a four hour drive. I would have to stop to take a nap in order to make it to where I was going. That's how ill I was. And so get there, the doctor um, did several things, but one of the main things he did, he's like, we're going to test your metals in your system, in your body and see what those come out to be. Didn't really know what he was talking about. And honestly, you know, coming from, you know, conventional medicine nurse, I was like, I don't know what this is going to be about, but I don't, I don't care. We're going to do whatever question it in my mind. What is this going to do? And so he did the test and the test came out with the, the contrast dye that we use in MRIs and CT scans, scandalium, I believe, um, came out off the charts. It didn't even register. It was so high that it didn't even register in the range on the test results. So he said, well, I'm going to do, what we need to do is do um, a couple of these um, chelation IVs. We're going to chelate these metals, get them out of your system. We're going to see where we're at. Okay, fine. Whatever we got to do. So I did, I think I want to say it was four or five of these IVs over about a six month time, uh, about an eight month time period. So I had the first one done and it was kind of like a placebo. It was kind of like, okay, I think I feel a little bit better, you know, but I'm still sleeping 18 hours a day and, you know, and so I had the second one done. And after the second one done, that was done, it was like, I was brought back from the dead. I could walk, I could talk, I could think. Now I was far from, you know, normal or anything, but I could function again. I was out of bed. And it was at that moment when I had that done, I was, it was like this awakening within me that I have some control over this. I, cause all before I was like, I was blindfolded and something was beating me that I had no idea what it was and it was completely out of control. But now it was like, okay, I have some control over this to what extent control, uh, control I had, I did not know at the time, but I knew I had control. So I came back home and saw this doctor, but I started seeing several other doctors. So it was kind of like, um, I had a lot of people helping me. Um, and I would take a little bit from each person that I saw and add it to my toolbox. Okay. This worked for me. This didn't, but this worked from this. So I could, probably I'll end up writing a book someday and, and detail all that, but there was a lot of things involved. And, but during that, I realized that my, my goal is I got to find all the triggers that cause inflammation in my body. I got to get rid of them. Those being gluten. I was highly sensitive to gluten, of course, sugar, um, stress, of course. I mean, those are just given things. Um, I also found out that um, I, when I was diagnosed with MS, my vitamin D level was a six optimal range is 60 to 80. Um, so I started at that point getting my vitamin D levels up, um, had to do that a different way because my body did not absorb normal vitamin D. So I had to figure that out. So there was a lot of things I was doing there. And honestly, it was like, okay, I, again, I had the disease, but I, I had control and things were moving in the right direction. And so during this time too, I got another neurologist because my PCP asked that I do that. 
which makes sense, you know, but I got a neurologist who knew that I was where I was at in my, what I was trying to do. And she was very helpful in that and respected that. So, um, things were going well. And then about a year after that time, I had a really stressful event that happened and I had had neuralgia, trigeminal and occipital neuralgia during my whole MS experience. But then it came back to the point to where I couldn't, I mean, it put me down. I was in up in the emergency rooms again and my walking started getting bad again. It all kind of started up again. And I was like, okay, here we go. So I was like, okay, but I can, we can do this still, you know, I just got to make some adjustments. Well, my neurologist is like, okay, you're, we're going to have to do treatment for a little bit. We're going to have to, because they were talking about doing surgery, facial surgery on my nerves. And we're like, we're not doing that. So I went on um, medication. Um, that is probably one of the most caustic MS treatments you can go on. However, I started the treatment and I felt wonderful. It was like, I did not have MS. Like I'd never had MS. It was, I thought, okay, I'm on this treatment now, but I'm going to have to find a way to not be stay on it. I'm just going to use it for now and then find a way to get off of it. I just got to do some more work. Got to, you know, and then, so it rocked on for about six months and I started having horrible reactions to the medication. I get, I would get an infusion once a month and I started getting these bad rashes right before my infusion. And my body was telling me, okay, this is not, this is not going to go. And, um, some other things led up to that. I ended up getting, um, some test results that showed that the, was that the medicine was causing some antibody issues. And so it was at that time. And granted I had at this point, throughout this whole time of my MS, I had done extensive therapy to unpack a lot of stuff from childhood, from things in my life. So I had done all this background things that I'm really not going into a lot of detail with now. So I had that in my corner, but it was like, okay, one thing that I had not done is I had not paid attention to how I talked up to myself. I, you know, it's like, I have MS or have bad days. It was like, I hurt I, this. And what I realized that I've got to become more mindful of what I say, how I act, what I do. And at that point, I knew that I was in this kind of um, crossroads where I've got to release all fear. And because at that point, treatment's not working. I don't know what, you know, I'm just going to surrender it all. And so that's when I really ramped up, um, my meditation, more therapy, my nutritional awareness, um, exercising more doing those things. But the big thing that I did was release fear all my life. I have feared anxiety. I had lived in fight or flight. I lived in survival mode to the point where most of my life, I don't really have a lot of memories because I was in survival mode. I was never living in complete awareness of my life. I was just surviving. And so I started working on that, uh, becoming aware, becoming mindful of what I say, what I do. I decided that that day that I'm like, you know what? I no longer have MS. I'm not, I'm going to live my life. Like I've been a person that's never had the disease. And I, I say this, like, it's really easy that I did all that and that, but I mean, it was just constant work because you have to push those thoughts out of your mind consciously. 
And when the thoughts would arise, push it out, push it out. So it was this, I, I don't have a lot of words for how I did all that, but that's the change that I made from before when I was doing so well with um, um, mess. So where I'm at now, um, I no longer have Dawson finger lesions in my brain. I have some lesions, but I've had them since I was 11. I still have some of the other ones that I developed over time, but the Dawson's finger lesions that had developed in real time on MRI are no longer detectable on MRI. I live my life where I, I'm back. I'm a, I work I work as a nurse. I, um, function within my family as if almost as if I've never had the disease. I will say this, that I'm not going to get on here and say, my MS is cured. It's gone. Never going to come back. Never going to have to deal with it again because I feel it in my body. Um, but when I feel it in my body is when stress sets in, when fear sets in, when anxiety sets in, I can feel my immune system ramp. I've got, I've, I've got to learn my body so well that I feel it when it comes into my body and I now can push it out and I can not, I can't, and this will take me six months to push it out. It takes me a day to push it out. Um, and so where I'm at also right now is that there's more to be done as I listen to like your podcast. And I take information from these wonderful people that are sharing their stories and how they manage and have managed. And it's like, again, my toolbox sits here with all the tools that I've collected from various people with doctors, whoever, and I add those to that toolbox. And, and I continue, it's a continual process of working on myself. But I would say, as of I'm going on a year and a half now with relatively zero symptoms, problems whatsoever. Well, you know, I never get tired of hearing these stories. I mean, it's just, just so inspiring. Um, so amazing that everybody in the world gets to hear the story, you know, yeah. how many stories are there like this that we just don't get to hear. So first, thank you for sharing your mm -hmm. story. So you mentioned gadolinium. Mm -hmm. and gadolinium is a metal that's used sometimes with MRI. Um, it's a contrast, so we can see the lesions light up, so to speak. And what I wanted to ask is, is it true that initially you had some symptoms that could be consistent with MS, and then you went through that initial diagnostic treatment process, which probably included MRIs, mm -hmm. and then did your symptoms get worse after that initially? Even though you were on steroids and immunosuppressants, your symptoms were getting worse after the initial diagnostic treatment process. That is correct. And also to add to that CT scans, because remember, um, I was having bowel, they thought I had bowel obstructions and things of that nature. So I was getting the MRIs and I was also getting a few CT scans all, I would say within a year's time, I don't know, I had at least three MRIs and at least three CT scans. So, and then you had this uh, chelation treatment, which is mm -hmm. in in the views of traditional allopathic medicine, it's very controversial or there's not yes. good evidence behind it, but at least anecdotally, it seems like in your case that mm -hmm. you're that testing, which is not a testing that we would usually do, um, but it showed high gadolinium levels with this, yes. with this other physician. And they, they did treatment specifically to get out gadolinium and you saw 
rather dramatic improvements with one or treat one or two treatments, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of things that we do medication-wise, treatment-wise, you don't see that significant of a change. And it was, I mean, like I said, I did not cure me at that point, but it was highly noticeable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how long was the period where you were on the immunosuppressants in total? Sounds like you'd, you'd been on a different array of drugs. Yes. And you know, so that's a good question. I would say seven years was, I would be on treatments, off treatments. And through that time period, I would have to go on IV medrol dose packs. Um, the, I want to say I've had four of those. Okay. So I've been on four different MS treatments and about four of the IV prednisone treatments throughout about a seven to eight year time frame, I think would be accurate. And it's, it's important, I think, for the audience to know also that there's so many different kinds of, uh, you know, no two physicians are the same, especially when you're talking about physicians that are outside the mainstream allopathic treatment model, right? So yes. um, this worked very well for Liz. Will it work for another person? We don't know because it's, yeah. it's I mean, this is Liz and this is her particular situation. So it's important to use that discernment to see. But But the point is here that this was something that is generally considered outside how we think about, you know, disease mm -hmm. and treatment that had dramatic results. So I think at least in your case, that was a big part of it for you was this, this metal toxicity. And then a secondary part of it, um, or another part of it was just this broad word of inflammation, right? Which you right. approached in so many different ways, mm -hmm. including uh, therapy, like talking about your childhood and, and working through some of those issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one thing that really stands out to me about your approach is that you really didn't say no to anything. You know, you said something about medicines. You said, um, use it for now, right? You talked about yeah. a highly caustic medicine, but it was helping you. So you were like, okay, it's helping. Let me use it and then figure out how to bridge so I can create this effect myself, which is such a, I think, a powerful lesson. You know, and that this is where this has become my passion in that when some, when a patient becomes ill and I, I work as a care manager nurse and I deal with patients that have chronic illnesses, a chronic illness is not caused from one thing. So therefore it cannot be treated with one modality, you know? And so it's a plethora of things, a litany of things that have to come into effect to actually heal someone. Now, along with that, it takes the patient being willing to do that too, being willing to know that this is a process, you know, and I think that where Western medicine goes is we can take a pill for everything and this and that, and, and we can, and I like to tell my patients this, that if you're diagnosed with something, let's just say hypertension. I mean, let's just be, cause that's hypertension, diabetes, they used to go hand in hand too. Um, you're diagnosed with something and they're like, you go in there and your blood pressure is extremely high. You have to take a medication for that because it has to come down and it has to come down quickly, or you could have significant health step away from that. Um, but what we don't do is we don't teach patients how to get off of that medication, what the root causes, all of those things. So you have a patient that stays on medication for a lifetime and that 
sets up in the body. So it all goes back to finding the root cause. Now, where we live in a society where things are either way over here or way over there, and that's where your attention is going to be. And we have to change that mindset to be have a more pragmatic approach to things in that we can utilize different sides of things to accomplish a goal. And honestly, that's the only way people will heal, in my opinion. I mean, there's some things that you could have that you could do totally holistically. I'm not saying that that's not the case. And there are some things, and I like to tell people that there's, there are diagnoses that you have that you have to stay on medication. If you have a, an organ transplant, if you have type one diabetes, I mean, you have to be on those medications to survive, but those, those problems are few. Most of the chronic illness, if, if we get to the causative factor of that, then we're going to heal where we have problems with are people where in my experience, I was able to not work to do that, to find this. I had um, disposable income to go and try things, do things. So where my, my passion lies in taking my experience to help everyone and to to help bridge this um, connection between the two types of, I would say two types of medicine, it's many different types of medicine. We're just gonna have to break down our barriers and start to each of us bridge that. And I'm extremely passionate about that. And it's not just because it was my experience. I see this in my patients daily. And I also see how trauma affects health how just stress in itself, we live in a high stress, high stress uh, society, and it's affecting all of us. And we're not even realizing what it's doing to us. We have to be aware and mindful. We have to be willing to find the tools to put in our toolbox. So well said, you know, you talked about the multifactorial causes of disease, um, of any disease really, including especially um, chronic disease. And it just makes sense, right? Because just to live, we don't just need one thing to live, right? For right. the body to grow, for kids to grow, for the for the mind to develop, it's not just one thing. You need food, right? You, you need to move the body, go different places, experiences. You need mm -hmm. rest, right? And you yes. know you need relationships, um, connecting with yourself. The environment matters. In short, everything matters, right? right. To put it very simply, everything matters. Now there are a few key things, which is why at Health Revolution, we focus on nutrition, movement, connection, rest, to just say, look, there are these multiple factors and, and each has such an important role. And, and when you look at it that way, it, it's just mind boggling to think that a pill could be a solution, right? right. Unless like in some cases it can be, but it, the real solution is the set of factors that got us there and how do we change that? Yes. Um, and even, yes. even how you said, you're like, look, I'm doing well, I'm doing great. And sometimes I can feel it coming on and I can, you use the phrase, push it out. And I, and I, have the, I like to hear about that. I have that feeling. I have the feeling that when you say push it out, it's, it's very specific for in your mind. It's very intuitive. It's very clear what you are doing, but most people have no idea what that means. So can you take us inside? You said in one day, you can push it out. What does that mean? What yes. do you do? Excellent question. Cause it has taken me a while to learn how to do this. But it goes back to when I changed my 
journey to be mindful. It's that when, like I said, I lived in survival mode. And so I didn't really take anything in. I just existed. And I started paying attention to my body because I knew if I went back to where I was, that was kind of my motivator. It's like, I cannot go back to where I was, period. And so I started paying attention. And whenever I would, you know, like, let's say that I would eat bread with gluten, I knew that feeling in my body. And it, you can, it feels like you're getting ready it, for my experience, like you kind of are getting ready to come out the flu because you can feel your immune system kick in. I have certain feelings. I can feel chills. I can feel this going on. And so it's like, okay, that's it. I, that's for me, that is my body saying, Hey, you know, this, things are getting ready to go awry. And so now I'm to the point to where, um, anything that happens, um, I immediately can feel when that sets in. So I, I, I shift my awareness to that. And it's like, hello, I, you know, I, I feel you, I see you. And then I think, what have I done in the past week, two weeks, you know, um, a lot of it is stress induced. I mean, I, I try not to watch the news anymore because it affects me so much. Um, but I, anyway, I'll let me just give an example of, um, recent things in the news with, you know, that's happened with some children in Texas and it really set in, feel that coming on. And then it becomes like, okay, well, what tools do I have to push it out? So first turn off the news. Um, but then it's like, okay, deep breathing. I know I have to move because whenever that happened to me, if, um, whenever, you know, a week or so ago, I had not exercised. We had been on vacation. I hadn't exercised. I hadn't, I didn't eat like I normally eat. Um, and then, so it's like, okay, I got to move. I've got to meditate. I've got to push it out. And again, I cannot exercise enough. Uh, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of exercise and movement, just as you, you say it, the endorphins, all of that. Um, and so usually things like that, because I, those are the tools that work for me. I shut it down. I do what I know works and I, I push it out. And I'm, you know, I, in, since I've learned to, you know, with, with, with therapy and just all the things I've, I've just learned how I've got a lot of stress out of my body that I, that I used to have. So when external stress comes in, you know, I, I think I can deal with it a little bit better because I don't have the leftover stress in me, if you, if that makes sense. But, um, those are the tools that I, that I pull out. Um, and then I'll, you know, if I, I know that if, if there's something else, like, you know, I go back to what have I eaten? Okay. There's a little bit of gluten in there. Um, that's probably done that. I fast. Um, fasting has become a huge thing for me um, because um, a lot of times you eat things you don't realize that's in there. Um, I will fast and it will knock it out in a day. The inflammation goes away, all of it. And then I learn from that. Oh, what was it that I did? What did I eat? I don't want to do that again. It's just paying attention, you know, so I could do it a whole spiel on fasting. It's phenomenal for people with in inflammatory diseases. Um, so people, I would suggest people put that in their toolbox. Um, so that's right now how I deal with it. There's a couple of things I've got going that I think I'm going to, there's a type of acupuncture 
that is done that resets your mind. Um, because when you're under a stressful situations, um, your body releases histamines and whatever your body is intaking at that time, your brain is wired to release histamines. I'm working on that right now to see if I can't, um, fix some of my, um, nutritional problems. Um, so that's another thing, another tool that I'm looking at to fit in to what's going on. So I'll keep you posted on that, but I'm excited about that. So one of the things that strikes me about people that heal like you is that, uh, you are such avid learners mm. and avid experimenters, you mm -hmm. know, and it's like the sole criteria is success and like going in the right direction and feeling better and consistency and independence like that's like the north star that i see in talking to so many people and uh, and same thing with you you're like you're willing to try anything before we started recording you just told me you were watching the other podcasts and you you heard somebody who had an amazing experience after hypnosis and you're like yes try that i gotta try that you know and it's it's such a it's such a refreshing perspective because you know we see in the er so many people with so many conditions um who who don't even know how to go about trying something new. And mm -hmm. you made a great point about society and you need to have time, you need to have money, you need to have space, you need mm -hmm. to have resources to know where to go. And, right. and these are obstacles for so many people. I mean, that's, to me, that's heartbreaking. Yes. And I, you know, I've always been a little hesitant sometimes about sharing my story because I don't want to give people permission to, because there are some dangerous things people do when they try things. Um, and so I kind of want to speak about that if you don't mind in that. Um, when I was, I'm a nurse, so I kind of know things that I could do that <laughs> are gonna harm me or, you know, things like that. And so I, I caution people, whenever you're trying new things, you need to, cause you can go on, you know, you can go online and look up anything and there'll be people that'll tell you to take whatever and don't ever put anything in your body, in your body that is going, that could possibly cause more harm. The only thing I did going, going, you know, with, with what I did was those chelation IVs. Now it was a doctor that did it. It wasn't somebody that studied the, you know, whatever. So I felt very comfortable with that, um, and knew that I would be okay. And so, but I think the most important thing to do is when you're trying to figure out what your tools are is to go intuitively and that you need to learn how that gut feeling also, does this sit right with me? Am I going to cause more harm to myself by doing X, Y, Z, you know, or most of these things do not cause more harm. Their therapy, their working, their mindfulness, their meditation, their exercise, I mean, all of those things. Um, so I do tell people, you know, just where are you getting the information from? Will it cause more harm? Could it cause more harm? And then if not, set it free. But um, because there are a lot of things that yeah. people have done that's not good. Yeah. So. And, and the other hard part of that is, as you said, it's, it's hard to know sometimes like who really knows what they're doing. You know, yeah. there are definitely people who know what they're doing. I mean, I interviewed a, an Ayurvedic physician who um, helped a person who was paralyzed get out of bed, stopped all of his immunosuppressants 
and wow. it became worse initially. He had CIDP, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, and he got worse because he was on immunosuppressants. And yes. and the doctor all the time was like, "It's okay, it'll be fine." And they're just like, "No, I'm not fine. I'm like paralyzed in bed, you know." But sure enough, uh-huh. he's 100% now playing sports and everything, not on any wow. meds. But that's harrowing, you know, and not every Ayurvedic physician is going to know how to do that. So I think it's also important to know that there are no easy answers. You know, there, there is no final expert, you know, that's going to know everything and the exact right thing to do. And that's what makes this challenging, just given the state of knowledge in our society. Now that's the bottom line, you know, Um, we're not there yet as a society to know this exactly is the way, but somewhere between doing absolutely anything and doing nothing is is that path for every person to find that and honing honing that instinct and that intuition with checks and balances to be like well i felt that way but i don't think that's right because abc happened or it's like i felt that way and yeah it seems to be panning out and that trial Mm -hmm. and error process you know right and that's a good point you make about i knew you know during this thing if i do nothing i will be in a wheelchair right and I also want to, uh, I've talked to people with MS and I have friends that have MS that are on treatments. And one of the things that they tell you when you're first diagnosed is to get on treatment as quick as possible, because, you know, so here's the thing with that is I tell people go on treatment because there are some people that are diagnosed with MS that is progressive MS. And you don't know how your journey with that's going to go. You don't know it, you know, um, but I always tell people if use that time, just like when you're starting any medication, I'm going to be on this medication for a while. And then I, this is what I'm going to do over here. And I will also tell people that if you have a physician that doesn't support that, you probably need to find a different physician because you have to have, there's a fine line. And you know, this in the medical field where you are considered non-compliant if you don't go, you know, so again, we're, we're going to think pragmatically and we're going to build that bridge where, okay, let's do both, you know, form a relationship, keep communication lines open. I want to do this, but I'm also going to do this as well and own that, but communicate that. And it's a tricky, that's a, that's a, I don't want to sit here and, and put stuff on our medical system. I am a believer in a medical system. We have a lot of problems within that. Um, but you know, the, the fear of being labeled non-compliant, cause I had that fear, especially being a nurse, many capacities. I know how non-compliant patients are treated and I was trained up in that. And I was like, I'm not going to be non-compliant. Okay. Well, I wasn't but I also did other things on the side. So I was able to kind of merge the two. Yeah. I think that's, that's another whole topic in itself, which is, so yes, it is. <laughs> we've had people who had to fight their doctor and their mm-hmm. diagnosis and say, no, that's not correct. And that's just, that's, that's a challenge to say the least. Yes. That's a challenge because for those people, it was necessary. And, and I don't mm-hmm. think there's a way to systematize that. I don't know that there's mm-hmm. a way, but everybody has to know that each of us has our own path to healing and, yeah. and it can take all kinds of, it can take all kinds of uh, ways. I wanted to ask about these phrases that you said mm-hmm. and get your, get your take on this. You said for you, it was so important to release all fear 
mm -hmm. uh, surrender, push thoughts out, mm -hmm. um, which are really, really powerful, really powerful phrases. Mm -hmm. And we know that we know that we also hear these phrases a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in in healing communities and and non-mainstream approaches to healing. And some people really struggle with that and don't like those phrases, right? It's like, right. it's like almost like I tried or like, how do you want me to surrender? Or it's, it's as if it's my fault because I'm not surrendering. Therefore, you know, it, you're putting it all on me. Um, and I understand that perspective. And so mm -hmm. how do we reconcile that? How can you help people in the audience who, who may be experiencing this to navigate that what seems like a contradiction, but yet is so powerful for people? Oh, I don't know if I can spot on answer that, but I'm going to try my best. Thank you. I think when you realize what fear is in that you, when you want to surrender something, you have to identify it. What is, you know, what is fear in my, in my life? What is causing this fear? And most of us can't even tell because it's been conditioned. We've like with me, I was that way since I was, could remember um, but I knew that I was at, a, I was at a point in my life to where it didn't matter. Like I was like, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm either, I'm fearing the treatment. I'm fearing my disease. Everything is fear. And so that was the one thing that I had not tried is just to release it. And I don't know how I can put in words, how I did that other than it just clicked with me that it was a conscious effort. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm a prayerful, prayerful person. I'm not, I don't belong to a religion. I am very spiritual. I do a lot of meditating, a lot of praying, all of that. I think where some people get into, I want to say trouble, but they kind of, they pray, you know, to release fear. And there's, you know, prayer is only good if you have action in it. So my thoughts are, I'm going to pray to surrender the fear. And then I've got to be an active participant. So I'm going to say, okay, when that fear comes in, I'm going to change that fear into something positive. And it, it takes, it takes action. It takes, you have to do the work. Fear comes in and then anybody can think of their own way of doing that. Maybe when the fear comes in, you're going to do, go do something. You're going to go exercise. You're going to go walk in your garden. You're going to pet your dog, whatever the case may be. You have something to fill that space. You identify it. You're conscious of it. That fear is creeping in. I'm conscious of that. This is what I'm going to do before you know it, it becomes habit. Fear comes in, you end up moving away from that without even realizing it. That's how I did it. But I will say it takes work and it takes being conscious, telling yourself I am every day, I am going to be conscious of today. I'm going to be conscious of what comes in my mind. I'm going to be conscious of what I speak out. I'm going to, I'm you. And if you have to post sticky notes around your house or you have whatever the case may be, and then it becomes habit. And once it becomes habit, it becomes autonomic. And that was my experience. That's the best way I can kind of put it in words, but it is an action. It's a prayer. It's a mindfulness, but then it's an action. The show is called Healing is Possible. Liz Childers, with your experience as an ICU nurse, as a care manager, and of course, your personal experience, when you hear the phrase healing is possible, what does it mean to you?
I've healing is possible because I have personally witnessed it within my own life. And I take care of patients that have the same type of things that I have had in my life. And I see where the things that some of the regimens that they're doing simply does not work. So I'm able to kind of view a couple of different worlds. And I know if I can help patients see that they can heal and how to do it, I know they will be. So this vision that, that I have, this kind of um, double vision, if you will, of two worlds, it, I am trying to bridge those two worlds where I'm at right now. And that's how I know that it is possible. It's all possible. And people, and we need to change our mindsets to know that we have far more control over our diseases than what we have ever believed. And you have to believe that. And then that's when you're able to find those tools and get on your journey. The stories shared here are the experiences of the speakers. They're not intended as medical advice. Join our network or simply share your story at healthrevolution.org. Healing is possible.